Hey everyone, how's it going? You're listening to another episode of the Wild Voices Project Podcast with me, Matt Williams. Our disconnection from the natural world and our busy and stressful lives and our lack of attention to our bodies and our minds are making us happy and even making us ill. There's increasing evidence to show that. Mindfulness, particularly mindfulness practiced in nature, has the ability to reconnect us and help us gain a sense of calm and experience the natural world that we ultimately come from. That's what Claire Thompson, author and explorer of mindfulness and nature, believes. And you can find out more about Claire at mindfulness-of-nature.com and on Twitter at NatureMindful. So this conversation is with Claire Thompson, and I just want to flag up front, I'm sorry that the sound quality is not as high as it normally is. Our team of technicians are currently investigating exactly what happened there. But I wanted to share it with you anyway because of the content and because of Claire's amazing ideas and storytelling. In this conversation, Claire covers how simple practices like finding a sit spot can help us to develop a mindful approach to the natural world and in turn to the rest of our lives. Taking this more mindful approach to life can help us to deal with challenging situations and become more aware of our emotional reactions and where they come from. We're part of nature and nature is part of us. So Claire sees it as common sense for us to undertake mindfulness in a natural setting because it heightens our senses and our perceptions. And I've actually put into practice this approach of finding a sit spot myself, uh, as you hear me describe in the episode, and found it to be a really rewarding process and practice. Practicing mindfulness can also be a great way to see wildlife and to enter a state of stillness that encourages it to become more confiding and to come closer. And Claire describes a couple of examples in that during this episode. She also talks about how she fell in love with Central and South America and explains how she's taken the decision to leave her day job in order to move there and set up a new business leading mindfulness retreats. And she explains the linkages between mindful experiences of nature and our motivation in turn to protect the things that we love. And so she explains that mindfulness in nature and of nature might in turn help us to conserve it and restore it. The Wild Voices Project podcast, as usual, tells the stories of people like Claire saving nature. You can find us online at wildvoicesproject.org and at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. You can subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals, which you can find out more about at wild-voices.org. I think that's everything I need to say. Let's dive in to this episode. Thank you very much for, for 
for joining me. I want to start where I always start, which is by asking where your interest in the outdoors, the environment, nature, um, wildlife, whichever of those fits best, uh, where that first began. Um, yeah, so for me, um, I'd say I probably started to develop a real interest and passion for the natural world uh, in my late teenage, late teenage years. Um, and it was very much at a time where, um, yeah, when I was a teenager, possibly like a lot of teenagers, um, I felt quite sort of disconnected, very, had lots of questions in my head, um, uh, trying to find answers to like what I wanted to do, what, uh, what was the right thing to do, uh, what mattered to me, all of those kinds of things. Um, and at the time I did a lot of, I don't know, I just read a lot about, um, various, Kind of theories, beliefs, philosophies, um, and just not, not a lot of it kind of made sense to me. And I just, it just kind of kept giving me more questions. Um, and then gradually, um, I guess I started to develop an interest in nature. I studied biology at university. Um, and this took me to, uh, developing an interest in nature conservation. And I went out to South America to, a volunteer on a nature conservation project in the Chilean Lake District. Um, and yeah, and, and I just, I, I guess I was, my mind was sort of blown by, um, the landscape in the, in the Chilean Lake District. Uh, I spent a lot of time up in the, um, monkey puzzle tree forest, Araucaria forest of the Lake District region. Um, and I, I just had um, a few moments out there that, just I guess sort of answered all my questions about like what um what all of this was all about and um I guess I had a sense that I was part of something greater than myself than all of the questions that I had in my mind um and uh just I guess I felt a sort of in incredibly strong sense of belonging there um uh, they were very ancient uh ancient forests uh and uh, yeah, it just kind of just just being in nature kind of made me feel at home, um, and from that then onwards, um, I just realised how much I enjoyed uh, being in nature, spending time in wild places, uh, and started to notice how it made me how it made me feel, all the benefits that it had for me, um, and and also kind of uh, I guess boosted my passion for. Uh, nature conservation and um, a desire to do what I could to protect it, I guess. Um, and I just want to pause on, so, so I've already thought of, <laughs> thought of several questions off the back of that. I just want to pause firstly on um, your choice of degree, which seems important because it seems like some of the, some of the later choices have snowballed from that. Why did you choose biology as your degree? Um, well, I guess it relates a little bit to what I was, what I was just saying. I, I was sort of, um, at the time I was, I guess I was just looking for answers for, from somewhere of just like, what, um, I don't know, what can I trust in terms of working out how to live my life or what was important in life? Um, and then I thought, well, actually, I guess the best place to look if you're interested in life is life itself. <laughs> Uh, which would be, um, uh, which is kind of what took me to biology. Um, and, um, and then as I, the more I learned about, uh, life itself through the science of biology initially, um, I, I guess I, I learned that we had come from 
nature, that we've evolved in a natural world, that we were part of a wider natural family, that we were related, or in, in my case, I was related to everything around me. And I guess it started to bring some sense of, uh, yeah, that sense of belonging, that sense of kind of connectedness to something else. Um, and um, yeah, I think it came, I think my interest in biology came from a desire to uh, sort of understand, um, but understand something that I actually trusted. And I um, I was brought up in France and went to um, went to a French international school, did the French baccalaureate before coming to university. Um, and so I, it, during my time at school and uh, when I was at the equivalent of sixth form, uh, I also studied philosophy, for example. And so I, I was really interested in that and. Uh, read a lot around, um, you know, around uh, all the big questions that people had and have analysed and have tried to find answers to. Um, but then I just thought, actually, like all of these are kind of stories in our minds. They're all sort of explanations that we've come up with. But actually, why don't I just look at nature and uh, I might find some answers there. <laughs> and when or where did the opportunities to go to South America come from was that a sort of field trip option or was it something else uh so it was it was the first time i went was during my uh, gap year so i finished my baccalaureate in, in france um and i had a year before going to university to study uh, natural sciences um and i just wanted to go and get some practical experience of uh of conservation um, and I wanted to spend time in uh, wild, yeah, some wild places uh, further afield. Um, so I kind of set myself the challenge of uh, going to Chile, and it was through um, it was through a kind of gap year organisation project um, that was uh, running projects for volunteers like myself to to go and uh, gain experience on the ground. And do you have a sense of why um, you said you said a few moments ago that you sort of felt at home in a way that you hadn't done before? Do you have a sense of why it was actually travelling abroad that gave you that sense of feeling at home, um, and why it took travelling outside of outside of the country where you grew up to experience that? <laughs> um, I um, partly, I think it was a. Uh, coincidence in the sense that it's probably one of the wildest places as such that I uh, had experienced in a way um, and although I uh, I was as I say I was brought up in France but uh, before that I spent uh, well only four years of my life in, in the UK and I guess I just hadn't had a lot of time to um, uh, kind of go out into um, that kind of wilderness uh, and when I had perhaps at a younger age I guess I wasn't aware of uh, what it what it was making me feel or what it meant to me at the time perhaps um, so I think it was a combination of a coincidence of um, kind of uh, timing so it was at the time where I was looking for something and uh, it just so happens that at that time where that sort of came to me I was in uh, in Chile a far away from my home I guess um, but I think also um, just the, it, the there's a sense of um, and I'm sure it's the same in many other parts of the world and um, 
but in Latin America, where I've um, been quite a few times now, um, there's just a sense of space and scale, and uh, the landscapes are just so huge um, that they kind of give me um, a sense of perspective, and um, it's almost like any questions that uh, were in my mind at the time just didn't really have a place in those in those landscapes, really. Uh, as I was saying earlier, in some places, very ancient forests, in some places, untouched. Um, and I just, I guess I sort of had this, um, yeah, like a, a deeper contact with the wild, I guess, or a deeper experience of it. And I'd say that uh, there are definitely places like that in the UK, in, in France, where I was, and in Europe more widely, of course. Um, but generally in my day-to-day life in the UK, uh, it's a very densely populated um, island, um, and so I think the contrast with the the huge sense of um, yeah sense of space and big massive landscapes uh, just had a really big impact on me in a way that it hadn't before uh, in in the UK at least in places that I've been um, to that date. It's really interesting. I can really identify with that. I had a. I had a childhood interest in nature myself that lasted for, well, that's lasted until now, and it started at a very young age. But there was, there were definitely a couple of key moments when I visited the Suffolk coast for the first time, and also when I visited the Western Isles of Scotland for the first time. I'm sure people who listen to the podcast have heard me talk about those places before, but there was something about those particular places that, um, that felt like coming home even though I'd never visited them before and I think it's not necessarily the geographical place but as you describe it was perhaps more about going for the first time I think really to places where there are huge open landscapes and where I suppose the the UK is slightly different from South America but nonetheless is that come as close to, as you can get in the UK at least to feeling like wilderness Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I can, I think the sense of, um, the sense of coming home is so important. And I think that people, um, I think people can get that from different places, uh, arguably different places at different times. Um, I feel like, um, these, uh, temperate rainforests and Araucaria, Monkey Puzzle Tree Forest in Chile that I visited as I say, about 10 years ago now for the first time. Like, but I don't, I don't really understand 100% why. <laughs> but for me, they, they just really made me feel at home in, in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. And it's not even because they were my, you know, they weren't, I wasn't brought up there. I hadn't spent a lot of time there initially. Uh, but there was just something about the type of forest, the, um, the silence in those forests, the fact that it's temperate and not uh, tropical, so I've spent some time in tropical forests and I, I loved the experience of being there, um, but I didn't have the same feeling of feeling at home. And for me, I feel like a combination, the combination of kind of, uh, old growth, ancient forests, uh, waterfalls, lakes, volcanoes, mountains, like I just, I don't know, I just felt really at home in that environment and I actually had the chance to return last year, um, so having not been there for 10 years, I went back last year um, for, well, I went traveling for a month in uh, Patagonia. So I went a little bit further south for the Lake District as well. But I took the opportunity to go back 
to this particular national park that I'd visited um, 10 years ago. Um, and it, uh, it was, it was an amazing feeling of, again, like sort of coming, feeling of coming home again. Uh, but also being faced with exactly the same, you know, these the, the same forests in the same places that I've been and noticing how, uh, how I'd changed over the last 10 years, or at least, uh, you know, how I'd become more comfortable in myself, how I'd sort of, um, yeah, grown, grown in confidence, uh, had different things going on in my mind, uh, to when I was last there. Uh, so, and it really, the place really reflected me really reflected that to me um but but also just with a really confident sense as well of um like oh i still feel i still feel really at home here um sometimes i wish they weren't 15,000 miles away from from my friends and family back in the uk but uh but there's something quite nice about it as well that, that feels like a special place for me and i think people I think we can all find our special places in nature and they, they will be different for everyone, probably at different times in our lives. Did, um, did that internal change that you've gone through uh, manifest itself in terms of the way that you interacted with or moved through the, the landscape? Um, yes. Uh, uh, I'd say yes. Um, however... Uh, in terms, I don't know, in terms of how I was first interacting or moving through the landscape when I first traveled to this place, um, I guess it already had that impact on me on which immediately changed my, uh, my relationship to nature just through spending time there. Um, but I feel like now through, um, through the work that I've been doing, uh, through using, uh, more experiential approaches to engaging people with nature, through using mindfulness, um, it definitely, um, definitely reveals how, to me how, uh, a more, a more mindful approach to being in nature, uh, is a very different way of being in nature to perhaps the way that I was engaging with nature when I was just, uh, looking at it through the lens of science. So when I was, um, when I was into, well, when I started off studying biology, it was very much uh, kind of um, understanding nature, knowledge about nature, almost like a desire to uh, not, not necessarily control it, but just kind of get a grasp over it. Whereas um, through uh, those two experiences that we've been talking about, um, I feel like almost instantly and uh, initially, and then as I was reminded last year, like just sort of thrown back into the sense of complete, uh, humility and respect for nature as opposed to any, any, um, almost any aspiration or desire to, uh, to kind of master it or control it or understand everything about it. And I feel like, of course, uh, through, through science, through biology, through conservation science, um, uh, we, we have discovered so much about the natural world and I, uh, think we should, absolutely continue to do that because well partly because it's fascinating in its own right and also because it's uh, very much needed if we to uh, put in place actions to protect nature um, but I think that that sense of just reminding ourselves that nature does not belong to us and that we actually know uh, very little <laughs> about the natural world uh, as in general um, is uh, is 
has been quite a change, a powerful change in kind of my attitude to how we relate to nature, how we engage with nature. So instead of feeling like nature belongs to us, um, it feels a lot more like uh, the reality, which is that we belong to nature and need to learn to live our lives in harmony with that and kind of within that uh, context, context sorry, which, um, which is in fact just a simple reality. And um, I, I think you've started to express this already, but you've, you've written these two incredible books, The Art of Mindful Birdwatching and uh, Mindfulness in the Natural World. Have I got the titles right? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Good. Um, which are beautifully written, but also encapsulate and express uh, some of these concepts. Um, I was wondering if you could just start by saying in your own words, what do you consider a mindful approach to experiencing the natural world to be? So in terms of both the experience of it, but also how how someone might approach the natural world in a mindful way. Sure. Uh, so maybe the easiest, easiest way into that is just to talk initially a little bit about mindfulness, um, because... Yeah. Um, as I'm sure you've heard, like mindfulness is kind of a bit of a buzzword. Uh, lots of people use it. It's used a lot in the media. Everybody's learning about mindfulness. Uh, there's also a lot of cynicism about mindfulness and what it, what it, what it means. Uh, is it just a, as bad? Is it just a trend? All of those things. Um, so I guess first just to say that, uh, Personally, I don't really like the word mindfulness, despite the fact that I've sort of <laughs> written two books about it. Um, <laughs> uh, however, uh, I have yet to find a word to replace it. So, <laughs> um, but the reason why I don't like the word is that it's, uh, it's a very long, it's a very long-winded word um, that uh, actually is referring to something that's very, it's very simple. It's arguably very challenging for a lot of us, but it's very simple. It's also completely a natural thing. Um, and it's something that, uh, I think we've all experienced, uh, to varying degrees. Uh, possibly some of us experience it even every day at times. Um, and it's just something that if we, if we would like to, we can practice more, uh, and we can develop. Um, but it's not, uh, some, Kind of, um, you know, strange, inaccessible state that is reserved for uh, people who spend their whole life meditating. Um, so I think it's really important to sort of dispel dispel any myths about mindfulness. Um, I guess on top of that, it's uh, it's not a concept. So which is why uh, words kind of often can be very difficult to use to um, to clearly communicate what mindfulness actually is. It's more something that we do, uh, something that we experience. Um, the way I usually introduce it to people in the workshops um, that I run um, is that I actually start by just getting people to just sit uh, quietly for two or three minutes uh, and just asking, ask yourself what you notice during those three minutes. Uh, and usually start, people start to come up with Things such as uh, they might notice thoughts, they might notice sounds, they might notice sights, smells, sense of touch, emotions, bodily sensations, uh, possibly many other different parts to their experience. And the point of that exercise is that it just shows us that in any given moment, there are so many different aspects to our experience. Um, but uh, in the Western world in particular, um, 
we tend to put a lot of energy and a lot of attention on one particular aspect of our experience, which is uh, our thinking, our thinking mind, what goes on in our heads. Um, and whereas actually there are all these other parts of our experience. So, and mindfulness is essentially um, the noticing and the awareness of all these different aspects of our experience. Um, that's one part of mindfulness. The other part is um, a whole set of attitudes that we bring to that awareness. And for want of a better word, I quite like to think of it as befriending our experience. Uh, so befriending our experiences of aliveness, of what it, what it feels like to be alive. And uh, within that word befriending, um, there are a whole bunch of attitudes such as um, being non-judgmental in how we relate to our experience, being kind, being compassionate, accepting, um, having um, a what's sometimes called a beginner's mind, which is uh, seeing if we can try to look at things uh, or experience things uh, as if we're seeing them for the first time. Uh, so we make a lot of assumptions based on our past experiences about what we already know, which means that uh, we don't always pay attention to what's actually there. We pay attention to what we think is there. Um, so all of these, all of these attitudes are a little bit like colors that we can bring to our attention as we're, as we're noticing these different parts of our experience. And once we have that awareness, uh, with colored, with those attitudes, uh, we then have the choice about what we, what part of our experience we actually want to pay attention to. So instead of being led by our so-called autopilot mode, which is basically what we spend arguably 80% of our day um, in lost in thought, if we're not consciously doing anything differently, um, we can actually choose to pay attention to any other part of our experience. Um, so that's that's where mindfulness becomes interesting because it enables us to have a more creative response uh, to what we're actually what we're actually experiencing in any given moment, uh, and in that in that sense, it doesn't allow us to change our experience, but it allows to change our relationship to our experience. Um, so, so that's that's mind that's the mindfulness side of things. Um, in terms of um, uh, oh no, just just one thing to add on that, which is again, that mindfulness is not uh, a therapy. It's not uh, a hobby. <laughs> um, it can be used as a as a as a therapy. It, it can really help people deal with uh, difficult states of mind, such as anxiety, depression, worry, um, and any other difficult mind states that we that we all experience. But uh, for me, it's actually just the awareness that we can nurture if we want to learn to live in tune with the natural flow of 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 the world. Um, and so, why do you why do you specifically say it's not a hobby? Why did you want to make that distinction? Um, just because um, I guess there are there are there's again there's a tendency for it at the moment that it sounds that it's become a little bit of a trend. So it's a bit like if people sort of go to their mindfulness class um, as like something that you do for an hour, but then you kind of go back to your life and kind of carry on with it. Whereas for me, it's more like it's it's a way of engaging with with life in a in a slightly different way um, of relating to life in a slightly different way. Um, and I suppose what might sound like a slightly facetious question, but why mind why the partnership between mindfulness and 
nature. Why would I not be, you know, why would I not be perfectly fine going and sitting in a <laughs> in a fluorescent lit room on a leather sofa doing my mindfulness? Why why is there this important and intimate relationship between mindfulness and nature for you? Um, well, the first thing is that whether we're being uh, mindful in a room or whether we're being mindful outdoors, uh, if you consider that we are nature, so our bodies are made of nature, they're made of the same elements as the rest of the natural world, we evolved in nature, we come from nature, but essentially we are nature as well. So when you're, when you're practicing mindfulness in a room, uh, perhaps, I don't know, going through a meditation or something, you, you might be being mindful of your breath, you might be being mindful of your body, uh, of your thoughts, but all of those things are also nature. So for me, whether we're being mindful, uh, if we're being mindful of our own experience, which is all we've got, then we are being mindful of nature already. Um, it just so happens that because we are nature, uh, we have an innate bond with the natural world. Um, and so for me, actually uh, practicing mindfulness outdoors in nature actually just makes a lot more sense. Uh, and it's also a lot easier because... Um, uh, when we're, because of this innate bond that we have with the natural world and the fact that our senses and our bodies uh, evolved in a natural world, then we have a natural feeling of being at home in nature. And actually, even if we don't make any effort to practice mindfulness, just the fact of being outdoors uh, stimulates our bodies and our senses in a way that they're not stimulated uh, indoors. Um, and so it automatically takes our attention a little bit away from from the mind so it takes the focus of our attention away from what's going on in our minds and actually uh and leads us to pay more attention to our senses anyway but on top of that if we if we choose to we can um, pay even more attention by making a conscious choice to engage with uh our experience of our senses uh to sort of grow that so uh there's a general um i guess it's kind of common wisdom that what we what we give our attention to tends to grow. Um, so if we give all our attention to the mind, then that will grow. If we give all our attention to uh, negative narratives in the mind, then they will grow. But actually, if we make the choice to just leave those there and pay attention to, for example, the sounds of nature, birdsong, what we can feel on our skin, um, what our bodies feel like, then maybe that aspect of our experience will grow. And do you think that we can experience uh, differences in, if, if we're able to change our relationship to our experience through a more mindful approach, do you think that we can experience and benefit from actual material differences in the outcomes of day-to-day decisions and things that happen to us? Uh, do you mean in relation to nature, or do you just mean generally? I mean more in in terms of life in general. Is there something about a more mindful approach that perhaps allows us to alter the way in which, even if they're small decisions, we approach those decisions or we take them or we deal with things that happen to us and we react perhaps? Uh, yeah. So basically, um, a more mindful approach to our lives means that we can have more creative responses to what uh what happens to us so it gives us more choice uh, not about uh what happens to us in our lives or indeed in any given moment but it gives us a choice about how we respond to that um so 
for example, if we're talking about difficult states of mind, um, if you if you experience a stressful event during the day uh, and you, I don't know, you have an argument with a colleague, you feel angry, uh, perhaps the habitual response to that, uh, the reactive response might be to go and uh, yell at your colleague and have a massive argument. Um, or the alternative response might be to just uh, notice that you're, that you're responding with anger um, kind of turn towards the fact that you're responding with anger with uh, with a non-judgmental attitude because actually how you how you respond in any given moment is not your it's not your choice it's not your fault it's just happened to you in that moment because of uh, all sorts of conditions that have sort of led to to that uh, that emotion coming up within you um, but then you can make a choice as to whether you uh, perhaps go and express the anger somewhere else and then perhaps have a, a more helpful conversation with your colleague about how uh, things could be better next time or what the actual problem was. Um, so it's it's basically instead of having a habitual response uh, in that uh, autopilot mode that we talked about earlier, which is just reactive, um, it enables us to have more creative responses and arguably just wiser responses to to uh, what happens in our lives and how we feel about what happens in our lives um, because uh, there's, there are a lot of things that happen uh, and actually how we, how we feel and what emotions come up within us in any given moment, uh, there's not actually a lot that we can do about that at the time. <laughs> um, so it's actually about, I think a lot of uh, how mindfulness can help is actually about realizing that there are, there are some things that uh, we would do better to uh, accept and kind of welcome because there's nothing we can do about them. There are some things that we um, we can change and actually working out what those things are that we can change and taking action to change them is uh, obviously a very wise and um, uh, can be a very powerful thing to do. But also, uh, most importantly, I think mindfulness enables us to develop a bit more wisdom about the difference between those two things. And that is uh, arguably the work of the lifetime, but, um, but it's kind of just, just working out, like, in any given situation, which part can I change, which part can I not change? And if I can't change it, then, uh, I, I just need to kind of, uh, let it be because we, we spend, all of us spend a lot of, um, time and energy, uh, actually kind of, uh, almost in a, in a conflict with our lives or in a conflict with our experience of our lives. Um, when uh, we're we're not possibly not as much in control as we like to think we are sometimes about about a lot of things anyway. Are you able to tell me a story about a time when you approached a choice or had a reaction in a way that was wiser because of this more mindful approach? Um, yeah. So let me think. Um, I mean, I guess I could tell you about um, kind of maybe instead of a specific situation, like a repetitive situations that I yeah. feel have happened to me and that probably are relevant to other people as well. Um, uh, I guess just in relationships with people, so in friendships, uh, with colleagues, uh, with family, um, like sometimes what people, so people can say things that uh, possibly upset you, might make you feel uncomfortable, um, and sometimes uh, in order to sort of protect yourself in a reactive way, uh, you might uh, you might respond by being critical back, or you might feel like responding by being critical back. 
um, or you might, um, um, I don't know, like if somebody, uh, if somebody asks you to do something and you really don't want to do it, like it, you might, it, it's really helpful to just sort of just take a moment to recognize what your, what your reaction is to that. So how that makes you feel initially and then whether that emotion is something that you then want to drive your actions or whether actually there might be a wiser response to that, which is just to, uh, instead of, as I say, getting angry with the other person, uh, you might just be like, oh, actually today I'm feeling a little bit stressed. Like I'm kind of aware that I'm feeling a little bit stressed. Uh, do you mind if I do this tomorrow? Or, um, so it's actually just about, um, I guess becoming aware of, uh, of what your reaction is, where, where that's actually coming from. Uh, and then, um, uh, how, uh, you know, whether, whether, uh, behaving as a result of that reaction is going to improve the situation in any way, uh, as, as a whole. Okay. And I, I, I wanted to ask as well, you mentioned a few moments ago about, um, this, uh, challenge of being too much in our heads is something that's fairly, uh, particularly pronounced in Western societies. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about where we inherit some of these mindfulness approaches from and what some of the philosophies or the cultures are where some of these ideas come from. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, generally, um, in the, in the East, so a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, 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 well, there's the obviously a lot of them come from Buddhism, um, so Buddhism is probably the main, the main, uh, for want of a better word, religion. Or like arguably, some people would say Buddhism is more an approach to life, a philosophy of life, than a religion. Um, but uh, uh, mindfulness is a very important component of uh, that uh, that philosophy of life. Um, I feel like a lot of uh, the, in the Western world, um, uh, probably since the sort of ancient Greeks and Romans, um, we, we've, we've created a, a big separation between, uh, what goes on in our minds and the rest of our experience. And then we've given so much more value to, to the mind. Uh, we use science to understand the world. So we, um, we, we want to, uh, explain everything through, uh, uh, rationality. We want to prove everything through reason. Uh, whereas I feel like a lot of the more Eastern traditions are arguably more intuitive. And so they, you know, they're sort of, uh, experiencing things with perhaps other parts of their experience to just the mind. Um, but actually, interestingly, now, uh, it seems that some of the kind of ancient wisdom from some of these Eastern traditions, um, such as Buddhism, um, uh, so that, you know, in Buddhism, one of the, one of the main, um, one of the main insights of, of the Buddha was, uh, about the, the interconnectedness of all things and the impermanence of all things. Uh, and actually it seems that now through, uh, Western science, uh, sort of 2000 years later, we're sort of coming to the same conclusion, but actually through proving it through, um, uh, quantum physics and systems biology. Um, 
And I'm not going to pretend that I have an in-depth understanding of quantum physics at all, but, um, but it's all, you know, it's all about the interconnectedness of everything. And it's not, it's not just a cause and effect. It's actually that when one thing happens, an infinite number of other things happen because everything is interconnected, which obviously relates very much to, uh, biology and the, uh, environmental issues that we're facing today as well. But I just find it really interesting that through a more mindful approach, through a whole sort of holistic approach, a lot of Eastern, um, Eastern traditions and philosophies and religions have uh, come to a similar conclusion, um, but um, through through a more intuitive uh, path pathway, I guess. Um, so I think, yeah, there's there's that uh, that side of things in terms of uh, more mindful um, cultures and traditions. I would also argue that there are a lot of um, um, uh, like the Native American cultures, some indigenous cultures. Uh, I feel like generally their relationship to life and to nature in particular is more mindful. Again, um, there's a, a, I think there's a greater trust in, uh, there's a greater trust in nature. There's a greater trust in intuition. Uh, people are much more in touch with their senses, with their experience more holistically. Um, so again, I feel like that those very ancient, uh, ancient cultures are some of which um, uh, are still still alive um, in many many parts of the world. Uh, have kept that um, well, I guess that sort of wise, arguably wise way of um, interacting with 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 life and with the natural world as well. Um, and Claire, I want to ask you a question which I could probably very well have overlooked uh, or omitted um, by mistake, but. You've spoken already about your first visit to South America, but when did you start thinking about or exploring these ideas of mindfulness and that connection with the natural world? Do you remember when when you first started taking an interest in that? And then how did you develop and, I suppose, hone your own mindfulness practice? Um, well, in terms of the um, uh, how it sort of developed... Um, I would say that it was a combination of the kind of biological training that I had, the experiences that I had in South America, and then um, and then just sort of allowing that to um, I don't know, like to reflect on that for uh, for a few years, um, and then I basically just started to realize that one of the main reasons why I wanted to work in nature conservation and why I was working in nature conservation was because um because of the uh experiences that I've had in nature. So it was much more about how I felt when I was in nature that really inspired me to want to work in nature conservation. Um and I also noticed that when I was in nature I felt uh at home, I felt a sense of belonging, I felt more able to be myself, uh I felt a greater sense of well being. Um so a lot of it was just sort of all these personal experiences and realizations of what the of what being in the natural world uh, had uh, done for me um, and then um, I had um, the opportunity to uh, write the first book called mindfulness in the natural world uh, and that was um, uh, I was approached by by um, uh, well no actually I approached the publisher and Ask them um, why they didn't have a 
a book on mindfulness and nature because they had a whole series of books uh, on mindfulness, but they didn't have one about mindfulness and nature. Um, so then they sort of came back to me and said, um, well, uh, what, what did you have in mind? Turned out that at the time I was, <laughs> I was actually asking them because I thought uh, like an author could write it. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then he just sort of came back to me and said, well, did you have something in mind? So I said, uh, well, yes, I think I do. Um, so I sat down, um, and realized that basically I, I did have, um, sort of six chapters in my head about, why I thought it was uh, vital for uh, for us to be more mindful of nature and why I thought it was so important to inspire others to be more mindful of nature. Um, and I kind of surprised myself, I guess. I, I just realized that I, uh, through my own experiences in nature, I sort of put quite a few pieces of various puzzles together and that it just seemed to make complete sense to me. Um, so that's sort of how the first book came about. Um, and then a few years later, uh, the publisher approached me again, and they knew that at the time um, I was working for BirdLife International, um, and they asked me if I wanted to uh, write a second book on bird watching and mindfulness, um, and uh, how, yeah, how, how the two how the two relate. Um, and this was another book in their their series, uh, their mindfulness series. Um, so so that that was then published and then uh, building on the publication of these two books um, I then started to uh, move to uh, working part-time for BirdLife for the last uh, few years until the end of August this year um, and uh, this gave me more time to actually take people out into nature and uh, create uh, well basically create conditions for people to explore their own experience of the natural world, uh, but in a in a group setting. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what how the path evolved. Um, and then to answer your other question in terms of my own uh, practice of mindfulness, um, I guess generally uh, I it's something that's it's become to be something that's always in the back of my mind. Um, so I don't. Uh, sit down and meditate every single day um, but I do go through phases where I do and generally I try I like to spend a um, little bit of time doing um, like listening to meditations or leading myself through meditations sometimes um, but generally I guess I just try to bring a more mindful approach to most of the things that I do whenever I whenever I can so it's just become something that's that's just kind of in the back of my mind and I feel like it's something that over time because it's in the back of my mind and consequently I'm kind of putting it into practice more often than I I have I have become uh, more mindful than I was say 10 years ago um, uh, and and it's really it's really enhanced well it's really enhanced my it, my own life uh, whether it's uh, personally, professionally, or otherwise, um, but I think it's also really even further enhanced my uh, experiences in in nature out out in the wild because um, uh, it it's become so, it's become a conscious thing. So when I'm actually when I'm outdoors in the wild, then I make a conscious effort to to be more mindful or to um, approach being in the wild in a more mindful way. Are there, though, really 
really, really practical rituals or practices people can institute to help them develop a mindfulness practice, whether that's in in general or whether it's specifically in nature? Um, yeah, so, I mean, just, just to explain that, um, like, my meditation is... Uh, is basically the formal practice of mindfulness. So, uh, you know, you can practice mindfulness doing whatever you, uh, doing whatever you're doing at any given time of the day, apart from probably sleeping. Um, generally, it's I think it's in terms of a sense of aliveness. So you you sort of feel you feel more, or you can feel more alive. That do, that doesn't necessarily mean that you always feel. Uh, it's always joyful and and positive emotions. Sometimes it can be the opposite. But generally, you just experience life more, uh, more vividly, more fully. I would say. Um, anyway, so that's that's just kind of mindfulness can be applied to most things. In terms of meditation, then that's more about. It's kind of like um, if you're learning an instrument, and uh, the like learning your scales would be the meditation, and then playing the whole musical piece would be the mindfulness. Um, so meditation is like a training to, uh, it's basically a way to train yourself to make the choices that you want in terms of what you pay attention to. So you might sit and some people would meditate on the breath. You could meditate on sounds. You can meditate on sights, on touch, anything that you like. Uh, but during a meditation, you would just pick a point of focus and you would, uh, continue to, uh, well, basically set the intention that you would maintain your attention on that particular part of your experience and then just bring your attention back to that over and over again um, as a way to be present with that particular aspect of your experience. Um, so meditation is one way. Um, I guess uh, um, and just in terms of engaging with nature, um, there's a very, a very simple exercise that uh, often... Uh, I sort of leave people with when they come away from some of the um, courses or workshops or retreats that I've run, which is called uh, it's called the sit spot, which is a big word for something very simple. <laughs> Pretty much I wanted to ask about what this. It is. <laughs> okay, uh, do you want to ask something now? Or well, I think I think you were about to answer the question that I was going to ask, <laughs> which is very simply: could you describe what a sit spot is? Okay. Okay, so uh, actually, first I should probably not uh, take full credit for it. So it's um, it's actually, a, I mean, it's an exercise that you'll find in a lot of places now. It's a very simple exercise, but it's actually something that I first came across uh, when I read a book called uh, What the Robin Knows by John Young, who's um, a naturalist and a, a tracker uh, and a birder. Um, and he basically talks about uh, how if we if we spend time in nature, especially watching birds, with uh, awareness and more receptivity as opposed to uh, kind of seeking out birds or um, kind of going out to see specific birds, uh, if we sort of sit and uh, quietly and with awareness and wait to see what happens, then the wildlife uh, tends to come to us and also we we start to um, anybody can start to learn a lot about the the language of nature through particularly he talks about bird song and bird calls um, 
And even if you know nothing about birds or about particular species of birds or their behavior, their ecology, if you just go outside every day and sit in the same spot um, every yeah every day, every week, uh, however often you can manage it, um, and just pay attention to what you can see, what you can hear, what you can smell, what you can touch, um, and just be completely receptive to what's there. Um, you you can learn so much about uh, that particular place. You can also develop a, arguably a personal relationship to that place. You might notice that on different days you personally bring different things to uh, to that spot. Um, John Young and others would argue that actually wildlife can really sense our attitude when we're in nature. And I think uh, I've really I've really been um, surprised by that on many occasions about how much that can be the case. And arguably these are uh, kind of anecdotal, um, well, it's anecdotal evidence in my experience. But there have been many many times uh, during some of the uh, courses and workshops that I've run where we've been sitting quietly as a group um, just doing uh, what I just described. So just sitting and paying attention to your different senses um, or just sitting and being receptive to whatever's around you with no particular expectation or no particular uh, seeking of anything. Um, and it's it's been, it's happened quite a few times where uh, wildlife has come closer than I possibly had experience when uh, I was not uh, in that mode of mind or um, not uh, in, yeah, not approaching it in that mindful way, in that completely receptive way. Um, I had a particular experience in Austria where I have run um, yearly uh, holidays for the last three years and we, we were up in the high Alps in Austria in a national park called Hohetal National Park. And we were just sitting on a mountainside, um, uh, yeah, paying attention to all those different senses. Uh, and in a, I was leading the group through a meditation. And um, halfway through the meditation, we just, or well, I turned around. They all had their eyes closed, but I turned around, and there was um, there was a marmot uh, that was just uh, probably just a few feet away from us. Um, and I've heard and seen marmots in the Alps many times before, but definitely not that close up. Um, and I kind of had to, um, well, chose to sort of uh, end the meditation and got people to sort of <laughs> gently, <laughs> calmly turn around and actually enjoy enjoy the experience that that, that was available to us. Um, so that was one, and I've had other similar experiences with with birds. Um, we've had. Uh, the other day we had a woodpecker came very close to to the group. Again, we've been sitting for about 20-30 minutes, um, uh, arguably quietly and with that that sort of receptive attitude. And we're similar, and I've had it, we've had it with buzzards, kestrels. Um, and again, this is all anecdotal, but um, I and I think that a lot of uh, John Young's observations are perhaps also anecdotal. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if there's any hardcore evidence for this yet, but um, but it, it it kind of makes sense <laughs> makes sense to me. And it's like if you if you um, kind of sit in a way that you're part of the environment that you're sitting in, and you're you know you're not um, uh, you're not you're not there with an energy of 
uh, wanting to control, wanting to hunt, uh, wanting to achieve anything in particular, then I think that wildlife can really sense that and it can lead to some really magical wildlife encounters. Do you remember any people's particular reactions to that experience? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, in the case of the marmot, they were just completely amazed. Some people had never, some people had never seen a marmot before. Uh, we'd heard them a lot during that week. Um, but for a lot of people, it was a unique, uh, like a first, first experience for them. Um, I think a lot of the time people, and myself included, um, it's kind of a sense of uh, like privilege, really, when you you have um, a really close encounter with a uh, with a with a wild animal with another living thing. Um, you could say that with people as well, but I think there's something even more special about uh, an encounter with uh, an animal that's um, kind of living in the wild, um, and yeah, a sense of privilege, almost a sense of kind of uh, magic in some way uh, uh, and sometimes just a, like a really uh, like almost intangible sense of connection like there's there's something again that innate bond that I was talking about earlier and um, I feel like it's something that we I feel like it's something that we can all experience if we if we end up in those um in those situations, uh, in contact with the wild, I think it's something that can be touched within all of us. Um, so yeah, I think overall, probably most people just feel privileged and kind of like a sense of magic about it. And do you have a sit spot at the moment? And if so, could you describe the last time that you went there? Uh, sure. So, um, actually at the moment I'm, um, based in, in Cambridge still and, um, I'm living at a friend's house and he has a garden. Uh, so I've spent, uh, yeah, just spent some time sitting in the garden. So it, it, as I said earlier, it doesn't have to be very far from home. It can literally be anywhere. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just been really nice, uh, going to sit out there in, uh, the mornings, um, and, just really well the main thing I guess I've enjoyed is actually just the feeling of autumn <laughs> so the you know the, the the change in the season um I've been there sometimes in the morning sometimes in the evenings um in the evenings I really the other day I was just sitting outside and I really enjoyed the how fast the light changes and how all the colors change um as the light changes there's a really special kind of golden autumn light uh, that uh, as the sun is lower down in the sky and um has and that like the speed at which uh everything changes in terms of the the colors and the shades and the textures is something that i've really enjoyed recently um and also yeah just watching uh there's a little robin that comes to sit um on the washing line outside um and there's uh quite a there have been quite a few starlings uh long-tailed tits um uh I saw a sparrow hawk the other day above the garden. Um and yeah, so just um uh it's just really it's just really nice when you sort of uh you yeah, what well, I think after you if you sit for about twenty to thirty minutes then um like the wildlife starts to feel um 
more trusting again if you again if you sit with that sort of receptive attitude i wanted to ask next where um where do you think our disconnection from the natural world stems from and what are some of the consequences of that disconnection both for us and for the natural world sure um so in terms of when or how the disconnection happens um if you think about before uh before people evolved or before our species evolved then um all the other animals and plants and every other form of life on the planet was just um there was no artificial um artificial separation between anything life just sort of unfolded uh and um i feel like uh when people first evolved uh we our species had a nomadic life lifestyle uh which was very much in tune with natural rhythms so again there was a sense of um just sort of living within uh within the ways of the natural world within the laws of the natural world and where the resources were available we we went um and i think uh arguably it was when we started to have a sedentary lifestyle um so about 10,000 years ago with the rise of agriculture uh we it seems that perhaps then we started to switch from um a, a relationship with nature in which we belonged to nature and we lived in tune with the rhythms of nature to uh, a um a new story which was that actually nature belongs to us and uh or at least we started to have the ability to gain more control of it so we started to have the ability to uh control our resources a little bit more to predict uh when we uh might need more resources uh and understand where we might get that from how we might get that and and so i i feel like that was probably um that was probably a tipping point in how we how we related to the natural world um but i'd say that essentially a lot of it is about the evolution of the conscious mind um so uh again arguably before uh before people came about then uh other forms of life did not have that or at least a, a conscious mind that was as developed as um as ours has become um and with the conscious mind uh came in obviously uh language belief system ideals uh thought processes ways of um uh ways of bringing people together through cultures religions etc um and but actually the conscious mind is also a way to separate our um our experience of the world and our relationship to the world into uh sort of an abstract uh an abstract way of looking at the world so what what we conjure up in our mind and our direct experience of the world um and i feel like a lot of the um stories that uh or belief systems that then emerged uh from then onwards um have not been uh haven't really been in accordance with uh how the natural world works and uh actually in accordance with how uh life works and nature works and constantly how we work um and and i feel like uh that 
um, the fact that that's some of our stories and some of our belief systems, including our economic systems, political systems at the global level and the local level initially, um, have really taken us down a route uh, of separation. Um, but I, I'd really say that essentially it was the evolution of the conscious mind. And having said all of that, um, again, sometimes there's a tendency with mindfulness and meditation and when it's talked about to assume that the mind is a bad thing or that uh, thinking is something that we should get rid of. And it's, I, I really don't think it's about that. I think that the, the mind is also um, a wonderful asset to our species. Um, it's enabled us uh, huge um, advances in understanding the world, in wondering at the world, in creativity, um, you know, in art, in music, in science. Um, so all of, you know, Again, the mind is a is a fantastic um, tool that we that we have, but I think it's also um, how we relate to it um, and the contents, <laughs> the contents of it, and the stories by which we live and our societies live um, are perhaps not so much in accordance with how things really work. And unsurprisingly, um, that doesn't really work in the long term. And I suppose if I'm understanding correctly, you don't necessarily, when you say conscious mind, you don't necessarily just mean a mind which is conscious, but also one which is self-aware and aware of its surroundings and able to influence those surroundings through the body it controls. Yes. Um, yeah, so in terms of what the mind means, um, uh, that's something that obviously many, many, many people have thought about in a thousand years. But um, arguably, as you just described, the mind is is um, could be described as our conscious experience and the contents of that. Um, but I would, I guess, my emphasis would just be on uh, the sort of ability that the mind gives us to uh, to create a separation between what's going on right now, right here, what we can see, what we can feel, what we can hear. Um, but then what's going on in our mind could be an abstract abstraction of that, or it could be a projection of something in the future or a memory of something in the past. Um, so there's there's um there's a there's a disconnect there if we're if we're not careful and in particular if we give so much um, so much importance to the mind uh, and we end up kind of living in the mind uh, and living by uh, all the stories that are uh, put into our minds or that we put into our own mind um, if those stories and if those uh, those thoughts um, are guiding our behaviors uh, when they're not actually in tune with how things really are uh, then it, it can have consequences uh, well twofold um, for our well-being at the kind of individual, personal level, uh, but also for the well-being of the rest of the, the rest of the, the natural world around us and all the other species that we share the planet with. And could you just elaborate on what you therefore think, in your own words, the, the healing potential of a more mindful approach is, again, both for us individually and for the natural world itself? Um, yeah, so I mean, if there's nothing, if nothing else, I think uh, we all have this innate 
you know, we, we all have this innate bond with nature. We're all part of nature. It makes a lot of sense that if we choose to uh, cut that bond with nature, it's going to have consequences. So even if that's all that people take away from from it, then I think it's there's no need to there's no need for any in-depth science to understand that to understand that if we have an innate bond with nature, then um, you know we, we 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 depend on connecting with it and living within it. Um, but I think that um, the main way in which uh, being more mindful of nature can um, generate, uh, or at least be the beginnings of generating behavioral change in terms of how we how we relate to the natural world and how we manage the resources that we depend on and how we just generally relate to other species that we share the planet with. I think there's um, two parts to it. One is that it's for me it's the inspiration, it's the motivation for wanting to um, for wanting to protect the natural world. So uh, I feel like having worked in nature conservation for just under 10 years, uh, I feel like one of the tricks that perhaps we've been missing in terms of engaging people with nature and getting people or inviting people to see the, the importance of the natural world and the value of the natural world um, is actually that we, we've been trying to convince people often using the traditional Western route, which is science, which is rational argument, um, and basically trying to, to show people uh, through that route that um, we, we are causing destruction to the planet, that this is, that it's not sustainable, um, that it's resulting in species extinction, climate change, all sorts of other environmental, um, environmental issues. Um, but actually, I think that people generally, if we think about life uh, as a whole, people generally protect and care about what they love. Uh, and people generally love or care about things that they've experienced. And I think that um, most people, or arguably all human beings, are much more motivated by um, how we how we feel um, uh, than what we think. <laughs> um, so, uh, and often that's something that, as scientists, we can we can shy away from because uh, we don't uh, we often don't consider emotion to be um, like a, a valid um, a valid way to get information about how we should behave or not behave. But actually, I feel like just by getting people to uh, experience the natural world directly and realize the power of what it can do for their well-being and the beauty that's out there, the wonder that's out there, um, can is is essentially the 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 thing that is needed to inspire people to then actually want to create sustainable behavioral change or uh, in their own lives and further afield. And I would say that if if I asked the people who work in nature conservation, I would argue that most of them decided that they work in nature conservation, that they sorry, decided to work in nature conservation because they have had experiences in nature that um, that they enjoyed, that they found wonder in, that inspired them, 
um, it was very much because they they love nature, they love being in nature, and I feel like that's something before anything else that I feel um, we we can inspire other people to 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 do and to and to and to gain from, um, and I feel like uh, because of this innate bond that I've mentioned so many times that we have with nature, I feel like there's a the potential for everybody to have to experience that sense of coming home that sense of belonging uh, when they're in nature and perhaps if more people did then more people would realize that the the fate of the natural world and their fate are completely interlinked and that what we do to nature we do to ourselves and perhaps um that could inspire uh, a desire for behavioral change and i think just the last thing well, the second thing about how mindfulness and nature can uh, help lead to this behavior, this um, yeah, really needed behavioral change at the global level is that once we start to pay attention to our experience as a whole and realize that some of the contents of what is going on in our individual and collective minds as a society as well as um, as individuals, um, we start to realize that some of those contents are perhaps not as in tune with how the world really works. So if everything is interconnected and if resources are not infinite, um, then if we have uh, global, political, economic ideologies that are based on the fact that they are, um, that's not going to work out. And in fact, it's not working out. <laughs> um, so, so I feel like just actually just paying attention to what is really there and not just what we have been taught is there or what we believe is there because it gives us a greater sense of control over the world and over our experience um, uh, can actually then lead us to perhaps make wiser decisions about how we how we do relate to nature and um, what we what we do to it and what we do within it. <laughs> yes, Claire, that was so beautifully put, and it's not just beautifully put; it's a really important reminder because. I feel the same sense as someone who works in nature conservation of sometimes neglecting to put aside enough time to refresh my own connection with nature, which is so vital, not just for my more general well-being, but also for my motivation and my job day to day. And I've been trying to pay more attention to that recently, um, but I'm sure that there are lots of people who listen to this podcast who maybe uh, sit behind a desk working on wildlife, the environment, nature conservation, day in, day out, but who maybe don't enjoy the natural world itself directly as much as perhaps they would like to, uh, or perhaps they should. So that's such an important reminder. You've actually helped to move us on beautifully smoothly to my next question, which is about the fact that I know that you're taking a step away from the formal world of of nature conservation and I suppose I just wanted to start by asking about what it is that you're going on to do next. Um, sure, so um, well what I'm going to do next is I'm going to continue to grow uh, the work that I started in um, uh, reconnecting people with nature and in, um, inspiring people to reconsider reflecting their relationship with nature and with themselves um, through running um, more workshops, holidays, retreats, courses uh, with uh, different audiences um, 
to 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 yeah, an invitation to for people to explore their relationship with the natural world in a more holistic way. Um, and in the short term, um, I am uh, well, I'm going to Cyprus for a month in October to um, do a little bit of work with BirdLife Cyprus that I worked with uh, initially in my job at BirdLife International over the last uh, seven years where I was working there. Um, but they are interested in exploring how we can use what I'm what I'm doing in my mindfulness work in their uh, education program and in some of their events as a, a complementary way to engage their audiences with the natural world. Um, and and then I'm actually going to uh, back to South America for the uh, for our European winter. Uh, so uh, partly because <laughs> um, running the workshops in the winter is more challenging because less people attend. <laughs> um, although <laughs> that's not to say that one cannot be mindful of nature in winter. <laughs> Um, but, but I guess it's less appealing to a lot of people. <laughs> um, and then also it's a bit of an excuse uh, for me to um, go back to uh, some of the places that uh, initially inspired my love of nature and to share those with um, other people and uh, with hopefully having some similar impact on them or um uh, at least inspiring, yeah, inspiring other people to 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 see the the importance of how we relate to to the natural world and 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 I think giving people powerful experiences in nature, like some of those that we talked about and that I described earlier, uh, can be really life changing in terms of how how people then go on and and um, uh, live their live their lives back home. Um, so yeah, so that, and there's also, as I say, a personal interest in just wanting to spend more time in some of the some of the wild places um, out there that, uh, to me, have often felt like a sense of coming home. Uh, I'm hoping to have more time to do some more writing, um, to yeah, just explore more ideas about how I can use what I what I'm doing through my uh, through this work of mine to, um, to, to contribute something good <laughs> to, uh, to improve uh, our relationship with nature as a whole, really. Um, and it's a bit of a leap of faith because I, um, I, yeah, I've left a full, uh, full-time job in, um, in uh, international nature conservation. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just been something that's been developing over a few years and I felt like now was a really good time to do that. Um, and I've managed to set up, set things up so that I'll be volunteering in a few places in uh, Chile and Argentina. So um, to sort of uh, cover any uh, financial issues, what I'm doing so far is not um, uh, far from being financially sustainable at the moment. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, I don't, and I don't, I don't want to see it too much as a business at the moment. I'm kind of, I, I, of course, I, I need to, I need to make an income, but um, I just really want to have the space to, to really reflect and explore on how I can best, uh, best use it to inspire others to um, spend more time in nature. Just a, just a few follow-up questions reflecting on some of what you just said. First of all, I'm interested in. Um, you said it's a bit of a leap 
to to take that decision to leave leave your job with Burbank International and move into doing this uh, more full time or close to full time. What was the sort of was there an internal debate or dialogue that you had with yourself around that around the decision, or was it was it an easy one to come to? Uh, no, there was definitely an internal debate uh, over many different things. Uh, one of them uh, is just a kind of human concern of security of a uh, kind of monthly income and a full-time job in something that is really important to me for an organisation that I really love and think are doing fantastic work. Um, and and uh, yeah, and there was, as I say, there was some security in that for me. Um, uh, versus uh, having kind of freedom to to just explore where things take me in a more kind of um, um, like almost day by day, month by month basis. Um, so so there was that. Um, but I feel like I've spent uh, now. Uh, just under 32 years of my life sort of in um, a structured environment that has been uh, in many ways provided some kind of security uh, and I just have a, I just have a sense that I just want to um, kind of have full freedom to to let my creativity run a bit wild and just see just see um, just see where where things take me and I guess I've, there's also just always been this thread, uh, probably since I first went to Chile. And I remember having a conversation with one of my friends out there and said, oh, it would be my, my kind of dream job to create a place where people can, can just come and experience nature in lots of different ways through lots of different mediums. So, media, sorry. Um, so like through art, through music, through perhaps drama, through writing. Um, and just like a place to explore uh, what, uh, yeah, what it feels like to be in nature and what it means to people. Uh, and that was 10 years ago, and I just kind of said it as a as a crazy teenager's idea of what I might do with my life. Um, but then I thought, no, I'll do something sensible. And, <laughs> uh, and yeah, and now I don't know if that's where it's leading me, but um, I guess there was already a seed of wanting to do something slightly different. Uh, and I think going back to Patagonia last year, um, uh, when I hadn't been back to that part of the world for such a long time, just made me realise that uh, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a whole world out there of people um, kind of uh, exploring how they can um, contribute uh, their insights or their skills to the world in different ways, and not necessarily through a structured full-time job. Um, and I guess meeting some of those people kind of made me think, oh, well, why don't, why don't I give it a go and see where it takes me? And there's definitely some kind of excitement in that, in that potential. Um, uh, but at the same time, as I say, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a difficult decision in terms of leaving bird life because I think, as I said earlier, I think it's a, it's a really great organization. It's a, a working in international conservation is quite a competitive sector to get into and, I was, I felt really grateful. I was really grateful for working there for seven years. Um, but I think also something that you alluded to earlier, um, I tried for 10 years to work in an office and it turns out that I don't really like it that much. <laughs> so, 
Um, and I guess I always told myself, um, yeah, but you're working in nature conservation, so and that if you want to work in international nature conservation, you have to be office based, which is very, which is true, and um, and it's really important the work that uh, that we do do in uh, office based environments for nature conservation. But I guess I just realised that the reason why I got in, became interested in nature conservation was because day to day I really enjoyed being in nature and I really enjoyed being with other people in nature and sharing that with people. And I just thought maybe there's a way in which I can build on what I've done so far to bring more of that into my day to day life. Um, and I, yeah, I just like to explore whether, whether that's possible, I guess. And, um, yeah, and, and in a way it was a bit of a mindfulness, uh, kind of mindful experience in, in the sense that instead of listening to uh, myself rationalizing to myself why I should stay in my <laughs> in my job at BirdLife and telling myself that I should be grateful and uh, you know I should be happy here etc uh, I actually just started to realize that um, maybe that wasn't the case and and actually started to listen to something else maybe like a, a different a, a different intuition that uh, maybe it's worth trusting and following for a while. So, uh, I guess we'll, yeah, we'll see where, we'll see where it takes me, but I'm looking forward to ex exploring something that really matters to me. Is there a particular place that you're looking forward to being able to go back and visit? And by place, I mean potentially as specific as a particular tree or a particular spot by a river, for example. <laughs> um, Yes, uh, so it would probably be uh, Werkewe National Park, uh, which is the place that I told you about many times in Chile. Uh, so up in the Arataria Monkey Puzzle Tree Forest. Um, and there's a lake up there that, uh, so it's, it's a national park and there's a, you sort of climb up to the, climb this path that takes you to like a, a flatter area where there's a whole series of different lakes and there's a there's a lake there and uh, which is surrounded by Arakaria trees um, and I went back there last last year last November when I when I was traveling um, and uh, yeah I'm really looking forward to going back to that particular spot um, and I've always had this sense that um, perhaps this is what <laughs> perhaps this is what um, Sort of inspired me when I first spent time in these forests, but I always had a sense that these Arakaria trees had all the possible answers to all my questions that I could ever have, even if they couldn't really tell me what they were. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that sounds a bit strange, but um, but I just because they're so ancient and they they I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but they're from the Jurassic period and. Uh, so from the age of the dinosaurs and um, and uh, the fact that they're so ancient, it feels like it feels like they're just really wise and they just uh, they they I I kind of gained a sense of comfort from from that from knowing that 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 perhaps they knew things I didn't know. Well, it's <laughs> when I first read your book, it was odd that you mentioned the importance of monkey puzzle trees because in the town where I grew up, Malvern in the west of England. There, there was one lone monkey puzzle tree in the center of the town for many, many years that I don't think is there any longer, but um, <laughs> was always a tree that I 
noticed every time we went past it when I was growing up. So yeah, I know <laughs> them, and they're fascinating trees. I've obviously, <clears throat> obviously, never experienced an entire forest of them, which I can't, you know, can't quite wrap my head around. But um, they're beautiful, beautiful trees. I wanted to ask another question to follow up on something you you said. You said that sometimes people who who come and share the mindfulness workshops that you do, sometimes they will have experiences that are fairly um, fairly important or can even be life-changing. I was wondering, obviously without revealing anyone's personal details, if there's an example of that that you're able to share. Uh, yeah, so I'll say um, I'm, I'm always I'm always so uh, surprised almost by how doing something so simple or inviting people to do something so simple can have such a big impact on people and um uh well there's been there's been many little anecdotes but, but recently there was uh one lady who came to a few of my workshops in Cambridge um and uh she a few weeks later she sent me this email and she basically just said that now that she realized that she was part of nature and even though she sort of knew she's never really become fully aware of it or she's never really thought about it and she she's perhaps never really experienced it in a in a in a full holistic way. Um, and she just said, Oh now that I realise that I'm part of nature and um I just feel like everything in my life is just falling into place and um she said that she suffered quite a bit from anxiety and worry and a little bit from depression and just that uh, yeah, spending time in nature had already started to alleviate that a little bit. Um, and she started exploring, uh, new avenues in her career. Uh, there's, there was something, um, she was, uh, going through a difficult time in, in some of her relationships and, uh, some of that sort of resolved as well. And of course, I'm not, uh, claiming that my workshop solved all these problems, but, um, but, but, but she really pointed to how just the, yeah, just the feeling and the, the understanding that she was part of something greater that just made sense. Like it was, it was almost like everything just sort of, um, yeah, everything just fell into place because it, it just seemed really obvious and she couldn't quite believe that she, she'd been around for that long without, um, without really experiencing that or really reflecting on that. Um, so yeah, that was one particularly, one particularly powerful one. Uh, and then just a little anecdote from the other day. Um, I did a short, uh, just a one hour workshop in Cambridge on Starbridge Common. And, um, we, well, I was just leading people through this exercise where they were paying attention to what they could see. So different colors, different shapes, any movement, what they could hear, what they could feel, what they're seeing, et cetera. And uh, at the end of the exercise, um, uh, one of the women uh, just sort of said, "I've never, I haven't looked at flowers for the last thirty years of my life." And she was just, she was just, there was just like an, a sense of amazement and wonder in her face. And again, for me, it was just, it was like a really simple thing, um, and it, it just really seemed to blow her mind in a way that she couldn't quite believe that since she was a child. She hadn't laid down in a field and looked up at the sky and watched the clouds. Um, so yeah, I think the power of very, very simple shifts in 
how people relate to their experience uh, is uh, is constantly kind of surprising me in some ways and perhaps not surprising me in others. But. <laughs> Those are really beautiful examples. Um, I think uh, I've just got a few sort of shorter questions to, to wrap up with. Um, I was wondering, you've already mentioned one writer. I was wondering if there are any other writers or thinkers or just books um, that have particularly inspired you or helped you or that you can draw lessons from. Uh, yeah, so I've, um, I read a book uh, when I was... Uh, actually around the time that I went to Chile uh, 10 years ago when I was um, just finished school. Uh, I read a book called The Web of Life, uh, which is by somebody called Richard Kapler. Um, he, he writes uh, about, uh, basically about systems biology, which is a kind of, um, well, probably not so much new now, but it's, it's a kind of new school of biology that's looking at things in a much more holistic way that's kind of based on uh, based on quantum physics, which then obviously impacts biology, um, and and that that was a really impactful book in in my in my life because it it just uh, it's, it was just really reflecting on how we needed a change in paradigm in terms of how we looked at the natural world, whether it was through science or through our experience of it, and very much reflecting on the interconnectedness of everything and how that has huge consequences for uh, all sorts of um, uh, all sorts of areas, whether it's medicine, whether it's conservation, science, whether it's physics, whether it's politics, it just has consequences for everything. Um, so that was one. Um, there was um, there's a book called Happiness and How It Happens, uh, which is in the mindfulness series that my books are part of. Um, which is written by Surya Sita. Um, it's a very nice introduction to mindfulness. Um, the, the Diversity of Life by uh, E.O. Wilson, which uh, many conservationists will be um, will be familiar with. Um, uh, a book called Lost in the Jungle uh, by Yossi Ginsberg, which is actually a story of kind of adventure and survival, but it was uh, his reflections about his time in nature um, really kind of resonated with quite a lot of the things that we've been talking about and how situations of survival where you're faced with the bare realities of life and death in the wild can really bring out uh, a very mindful uh, mindful engagement with life because uh, we're in situations where we don't have any other choice. Um, yeah, those are those are some of them. Um, but I'm yeah, I'm sure there are many others, but I'll probably leave it at that. And, and I know there are a couple of passages that you picked out as well that you wanted to share, which are the stories which you wanted to share, which I was wondering if you wanted to, wanted to maybe do that now. Yeah, sure. Uh, so maybe I will read um, a passage from the Art of Mindful Birdwatching. Um, yeah, so this this is just a, um, a little passage about an encounter with a pygmy owl that I um, came across uh, when I was in Cuba with a friend, uh, and I feel like it 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 really summarizes it really summarizes or reflects on the theme of mindfulness. Um, 
but also on how uh, it relates to nature and our encounters with wildlife. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I'll just read this one to you um, first. So, one of my most insightful treasured birdwatching experiences occurred at dawn in the midst of the swamp forests of Cuba, where I was on the lookout for Cuban toddies. Though I'd seen them on various occasions during my Cuban travels, I hoped I might have been gifted with a few more moments in their charming company before catching my flight home the following day. A few minutes into my walk, I heard their delightfully distinctive calls around me amidst the irksome whining sound of mosquitoes. Still, I struggled to spot them through the dense forest. Eventually, the heat, the mosquitoes, and the lack of toddies challenged my patience, leaving me unreasonably frustrated. Reminding myself that birds don't turn up on demand, I decided to turn back, grateful for at least having heard the toddies once more. As I followed the path back to my lodge, I turned a corner and suddenly found myself face to face with a pygmy owl, perched on a branch only two or three feet away. A stunning apparition. The noble bird stared straight at me through astonishing bright yellow eyes. Its gaze expressed a mysterious combination of piercing wildness and total serenity. As we looked into each other's eyes during what felt like a fleeting yet infinite moment, the first ray of sunshine of the day filtered through the trees and lit up the top of his beautiful brown and white speckled head. Together, we welcomed the sunlight in complete stillness. This was the enthralling silence of the wild. For a moment, all noise stopped, be it the chatter of my mind or the whining mosquitoes. I saw reality with intense clarity as I lost myself in the owl's stare. I was left in awe with respect, humility and absolute compassion. The bird and I became part of one another. We were no longer two separate beings. One of life's deepest truths had revealed itself again. Each moment is a set of interconnected conditions coming together for a once-in-a-lifetime union. We call it our present experience. This wasn't about me, the owl, the sunlight, or the forest. It was about everything we shared in an unforgettable instant. Through the mesmerizing silence that had emerged between the owl and me, I had caught a glimpse of the whole world. That's really beautiful, and I remember reading that passage, and it was one of my favourite ones, one of my favourite stories from your books. And I think, I think you wanted to share a sec, uh, uh, um, a selection of poetry as well, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I just thought it would be nice to finish on. Um, well, I don't know if you're finishing, but finish on. We're, on we're, <laughs> yeah, we're close to wrapping up. So, do you want to maybe say why you chose this piece, and also then maybe share it? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I chose this poem because it's uh, it was a it was a really nice. Uh, it kind of brings together leaving bird life, um, my upcoming um, adventure, and uh, kind of unexpected. Um, next few months and uh, what, what, uh, embracing what, what's going to come up there, uh, but also just captures um, uh, the, the, a sense of wildness, uh, it captures mindfulness, it captures um, 
uh, yeah, it just captures a sense of where things are for me, but also uh, how that relates to uh, the work that I'm doing. So uh, it's called Wild Geese, and it's by uh, Mary Oliver. So I'll just read it to you now. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. I really love that poem as well. It's one, it's one that I know. Thank you very much for, for sharing it. Um, Claire, where can people find you and your work uh, online, what would you like people to know? Where would you like them to go? Uh, well, my website is uh, www.mindfulness-of-nature.com. Uh, so you can find out about what I do and why there. Uh, you can also find out about any upcoming workshops, courses, holidays, and retreats that I'm leading over the coming months and into next year. Um, I'm uh, leading uh, a three-day uh, three-day retreat next weekend in Snowdonia at the Triganos Retreat Centre called Be Wild in Your Mind. Um, I'm leading one in Cyprus in October uh, and then a couple of uh, longer ones in uh, Chile. So that will be uh, that will take place in Huerquera National Park, which I talked about earlier. So it's a very um, very special opportunity for me to finally. Um, kind of return, but whilst sharing um, uh, some of the things that we that we've talked about and giving other people the opportunity to experience that that place, um, then one in Argentina and a couple more in Chile next year. But all of the information is on um, is on the website, and the information about uh, the two books are, is also on the website. Um, and I have a blog uh, on there, so if you like to sign up to receive any of my writings or any information about any upcoming courses in retreat, then you can also put your email address in there and then you will receive um, uh, receive notifications from the blog. And I think I've said it already, but I'll repeat it because it's, it bears repeating that I've read both of your books and they're not only beautifully written, but also inspiring and informative about how to take a mindful approach to bird watching and to the, and to the natural world as well great a great background introduction to the concept of life small generally so i would really really highly recommend it as well um Claire, is there anything else that you wanted to say or share or that you thought i was going to ask about that i haven't um i don't think so uh i think um yeah just to say uh thank you very much for um for your interest in what i do um and uh yeah i i i simply hope that it inspires uh, many more people to uh, explore 
mindfulness and um, and a more mindful approach to our, our own experience within us and around us in nature. Um, uh, yeah, I, I hope I can inspire more to, to do that and um, in a small way uh, contribute towards the uh, big behavioural changes that we need to make the world um, happier, more peaceful and on the road towards sustainability. Claire, thank you so much. That was, as I've been hoping for a while, such a beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Max, for, for hosting me. That's all right. That was really, really good. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.